All right, good morning, everyone. I'm Curtis. Um, I have no official title, nor do I have a beard, so... (laughs) We're just going to jump right into it. So I'm going to tell you guys a story. Um, So we, my wife and I, some friends, have been making a garden. Uh, We're making a large garden. Uh, We've been doing it for a couple years now, and the other day, Dave Sosa and I are out in the garden. I'm running the rototiller. He's... I think he's got a shovel or a hand tiller or something. And he looks at me and he says, so, do you enjoy this? <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I said, well, his wife's kind of running this, so I need, to, I, need to be, I need to be nice. So I say, yeah, you know, I actually do. I like, I like working with my hands. There's something satisfying about being outside and doing something ugh, physical. Uh, I really do enjoy watching the things that we planted grow. Uh, and it's good eating at the end of the year. But he looks at me again, he says, but do you like it? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, the first 20 minutes is fun, but after that, no, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about sowing, we're going to talk about reaping, we're going to talk about doing the hard stuff, uh, and we're going to spend most of our time in Galatians 6.9. Uh, It should be a fairly familiar passage to most people. Uh, I think it's been quoted at least three times over the last three weeks. So again, it's come up a lot. And in this statement, Paul is talking to the Galatians, and he says uh, in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Easy lesson, right? I don't have a mic to drop, but (laughs) right? I'm out of here. Sermon's over. Go home. Before we do that, though, let's, let's rewind a couple of, just a couple of centuries, just a couple of centuries. I want to tell you about a man named Daniel. So most of us know some of the stories or all the stories of Daniel, but I'm going to walk you through a little bit of Daniel's timeline. Daniel was born uh, in a time of upheaval. Uh, he was born during the beginnings of the great empires of earth. <clears throat> A lot of political upheaval. There's a lot of military upheaval. Uh, The Greek empires were just beginning to start to coalesce. Most of the tribal kingdoms were starting to be conquered or to be absorbed into newer, larger world powers, among which are the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So around 600 B.C., so 600 years before Jesus, uh, Daniel, his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are taken captive. They are exiled to Babylon because, and I quote, this is from Daniel 1.4, if you want to look me up, this is the reason that they are exiled in this first kind of capturing of Jewish people. They are good-looking, intelligent, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, with the ability to serve in the king's court. Quite frankly, they are intelligent slaves. Furthermore, once they are in Babylon, they are given new names and stripped of most of their cultural identity. Daniel, a name that says God, a name that means God is my judge, is given the name Belshazzar, which means favorite of Bel or the foreign deity's prince. Uh, Hananiah, which means Yahweh has given, uh, has become Shadrach. Mishael becomes uh, Meshach. Azariah becomes Abednego, and all of them. And I'm happy to share this with whoever afterwards, but I only have a limited amount of time up here. Um, all of them have unique names that are attributed or attached to a now Babylonian deity. So in a sense, their names become blasphemy. Ouch. Daniel, though, eh, he hangs on. 
Um, shortly thereafter, they go through three years of, of training, and during that time, he refuses the king's food. They're given an allotment. Again, they want their slaves well-fed because they're going to be serving in front of the king, uh, and the king doesn't like ugly people, so he wants all of his people to look good, to be well-fed, to be strong, uh, and not worried about where their next meal is coming from. Daniel, however, wants to maintain what God has told him to do. So he makes a wager, and he refuses the king's food. In the end, he's vindicated, which most of us probably know that story. And that's not the end of it. So shortly thereafter, three-ish years later, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Um, some of you may remember this as well. He dreams about a big statue. He dreams about a boulder that knocks the statue over. Things fracture. And then he forgets it. And he's so angry that he forgot this dream that he calls all of his mages, all of his scribes, all of his fortune tellers in front of him. He says, I had a dream. And they say, great, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. He says, no, no, no. I don't remember the dream. You tell me what the dream was and then interpret it for me. Oh, by the way, if you can't do this, you're all dead. And not just you, everybody in the king's court gets to take a uh, trip to the gallows. So, of course, eventually uh, this filters to Daniel. And Daniel does exactly what nobody else could do. Uh, he recites the dream. He reveals it. He interprets it. Uh, and then his next... Because of that, his reward is that he's given uh, an administrative position over most of uh, Babylon. He, in turn, gets his friends and says, hey, these guys are smart dudes as well. Let's get them in power. They can help you out. They can do the same kind of things that I can do. And so they all get positions of power as well. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also get positions of power. So presumably, Daniel is working as an aide to the king in the royal court during the next 10 to 20 years. I want you to think about it. The next 10 to 20 years. During the next 10 to 20 years, what is happening during this time is that the Babylonians are continuing their quest under Nebuchadnezzar to besiege and eradicate the rest of the Jews. During this time, they burn all of Jerusalem. They raise the temple to the ground. And legend has it they sprinkle salt or salt over top of the area so that it will never be able to grow food again. It's a big deal. Then, during all this time, uh, Daniel's friends, probably as part of uh, a conquering parade coming back, there's this giant statue put up. Daniel's friends find themselves with the very familiar story of in front of the fiery furnace, they refuse to bow down. Um, and then they are thrown in the furnace and they come out of it. Okay, all this stuff happens. Then about 10 years or so later, after all this stuff happens, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This time he goes to Daniel and he says, hey, uh, Belshazzar, because, you know, he uses the Babylonian name. And he says, I had another dream. And it seems like a pretty bad one. And Daniel is appalled. And he says, I I'll interpret this dream, but I want you to know it's not good. It's not good at all. He says, you're too prideful, and God says, if, if you don't shape up, he's going to bring you down. And sure enough, that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Uh, he's prideful, he loses his sanity, goes nuts for a little while, and then eventually uh, he is restored. Now, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar had, and Daniel have a pretty good thing going on now. They, they kind of, you know, they understand each other. Well, right around this time, of course, Nebuchadnezzar dies, so Daniel gets to start all over again. Uh, around... 550 B.C., uh, give or take, uh, 
a few things happen. Daniel has several visions, again, about the end of the world, the demise of all these world empires, uh, as well as there is a series of more kings that happen, uh, at least three, the final of which is a man by the name of Nabondius, who is not the greatest king, and as part of that, he appoints his son Belshazzar as a co-regent of Babylon. Daniel has these dreams, and at this point he's getting aged. Remember, this is 50 plus years after the time that he was taken captive. So he has all these dreams, and it says that he's exhausted for many days, and he can't get up for a little while because dreaming is very exhausting. Around 540 AD, uh, Belshazzar, the co-regent and son of King Nabondius, holds a feast and desecrates the Jewish religious holy vessels from the temple during the point of that feast. Some writing appears on the wall, and he's terrified, with good reason. So after some discussion, I imagine, they bring Daniel out because he's proven to be reliable in these sorts of things. And he says, hey, Daniel, there's some writing on the wall. Uh, Tell me what it means, and I'll give you anything you want. And Daniel says, keep what you've got. I'll tell you what it means. Tonight is your last day on earth. That very night, Sirius of Persia captures all of Babylon, all of Babylon, most of the Babylonian kingdom, there's some fighting and stuff that goes on for a while yet, but they, Cyrus of Persia captures Babylon, uh, Belshazzar, is, or sorry, Belshazzar, the prince, is killed, and then during this upheaval, Darius is appointed as the governor or the viceroy of the Babylonian province. It takes a very short period of time before Darius realizes that Daniel is, again, a pretty smart guy and has been doing this for quite a while. So he appoints him to a high level of administration. Well, the people of Darius' previous company are not happy about that, so we all know the story again. They say, hey, Darius, we think that these people around here don't respect the Persians, so we need to make an edict that says nobody... Nobody can worship any gods but ours. So, of course, again, we know the story. Daniel refuses. Uh, He is thrown into the the den of lions, comes out of the den of lions unscathed. And presumably, uh, Darius and him have this very good relationship again towards the end of the book of Daniel. As well as Daniel has multiple other dreams. Um, He has a a vision given to him by the, the angel Gabriel himself. And in this time, during while this is happening, in Daniel 9, we read that Daniel reads from the book of Jeremiah and recognizes that the time of captivity is almost over. And his immediate response is that he falls on his knees before God and he prays and he confesses his sins, the sins of his nation, uh, the sins of the Babylonians even, which is pretty amazing, and says, you promised this, now's the time, let's go home. Well, what happens to Daniel, right? This is more or less the end of the book. What happens to Daniel? Well... Uh, in 539, 538 B.C., so again, 70 to 80 years after um, Daniel is originally taken captive, the Cyrus, the Persian king, signs the edict and allows the Jews to return to Judea, to Jerusalem, and begin rebuilding. Um, that story is told in Ezra and, and Nehemiah. But presumably, right around this time, Daniel dies. So, why tell you all that? just to prove that Daniel had an epic life. He lived a long time. Um, Hopefully, though, I've presented myself in a situation that will give me just the smallest amount of credence so you'll 
uh, and you'll just indulge me here for a moment. So just imagine this, okay? Imagine this with me. Daniel and the lions, then. It's a, it's a familiar story. We've gone through all these snapshots of Daniel's life. I can almost picture it, right? Daniel is old. He's tired. Uh, most of his friends have probably passed away because most people didn't live as long as Daniel did at this time. He spent his entire life, entire life, working for men who have endeavored to keep his nation captured. He himself has been threatened and even assured of death on multiple occasions. He may have had a slight ray of hope after the dreams that he had, and he sees the overthrowing of Babylon, Babylon by the Persians. He might have that, that slight sliver of hope, like, okay, maybe something's happening, the world's changing. And even better, Darius wants me in his administration. You know, life, life is good. And look, here in Jeremiah, it says we're going to be going home soon. And then, of course, he hears the news. Well, you can't pray to any other God but that of the Persians. Darius has been tricked. There's a law that says that any unsanctioned worship to any unsanctioned God will have that parishioner thrown into a den of lions. So what does Daniel do? Well, again, just indulge me for a moment. Let's pretend that they had Twitter-esque during that day. So somebody passes him a piece of papyrus, and this is what he sees. Right? Don't be weary of doing good, Daniel. You've got this. Right? Isn't this the way we approach it, though? We go through this fight. We see Christians. We see our friends. We see our neighbors. We see everybody beaten down, weary about the world. They've lived these lives where they have continuously tried tried, excuse me, to do good. They've continuously tried to do right. And then they run into a roadblock. And they're sitting there making the hard decision. And we do this. This is exactly what we do. I do this. Like, it'll be fine. Just stay motivated. Don't be weary. It'll be okay. Of course, it's satire, okay? But things get tough. We get tired. We get worn out. We get weary. But we live in the same type of culture, right? We live in the midst of a rough culture. We are a captive nation, and I'm going to explain that later. But we are a captive people, a captive nation in a world that actively is trying to assimilate us. I can't help but think throughout all of this, why did Daniel do it? It'd be so much easier to say, okay, yeah, I'll eat your food, king. Yeah, you know that dream? Don't worry about it. It'd be so much easier to just say, okay, I don't want to deal with lions. Please, no more lions. Let's just, I'll wait a couple weeks and see how things simmer down, and then maybe I can go back. or Maybe I'll just close the door this time, right? For some reason, Daniel continues to do good, even in the midst of all this stuff that's going on. And, and don't be mistaken. Again, I, have a, I'm a, I love lists. I love history. So I have a list. I'm just going to rattle these off really quick. But Daniel was a master, a master at doing good in bad situations. In Daniel 1, right after uh, all this stuff is found out, one of the first statements we hear about Daniel is that, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, assuming Daniel is the, one, the ones being consulted, he found them ten times better than the magicians and conjurers who were in his realms. That means Daniel was doing his job well. He wasn't just placating the king. He wasn't just doing what the rest of the magicians and the conjurers were doing and saying, hey, king, things are going to go great. He's telling them the truth. <clears throat> Secondly, in the dream about, uh, the king's dream about the fate of the world, 
Daniel's first request, once he's told, hey, I'm going to give you, you did great. I'm going I'm to give you all this stuff. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you administration. His, his first response is, hey, I know these guys, and they're going to be great for you, right? When Nebuchadnezzar comes to Daniel and says, I had a dream, and it seems like a bad one, Daniel, again, in Daniel 4.19, says to King Nebuchadnezzar, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, we could, we could argue about this just being a nicety. He's just telling Nebuchadnezzar a good thing. But I really want to believe that, that Daniel lived this because this is, this is the way he was. Uh, he was actually appalled that any of the things that were foretold would happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is about the guy who has your nation in chains for 40 years at this point. How can you do that? When Belshazzar, the Belshazzar, the, the king prince, we'll call him, <clears throat> says to Daniel, tell me what the writing on the wall means and I'll give you anything. Daniel's immediate response is, keep what you have. When Daniel was distinguishing himself uh, over the others, when Darius comes in and, and adopts the administration and starts, you know, making his own cabinet, as it were, uh, and Darius has him thrown into the lion's den, he brings him back out. His first response, his first response when Darius is talking to him, it says, Daniel, you're still alive. He says, O king, live forever. Seriously? Finally, in Daniel 9, again, during all this upheaval, his concern is the fate of his nation. He reads in Jeremiah, he sees what's going on, and instead of being like, told you so, or instead of being like, thank you God for this wonderful revelation to me, he falls on his knees and he repents. Wow. And then the thing that, that just sticks out to me every single time is Daniel 11.1. 1. So again, all this stuff is happening. He's seen the overthrow of his empire. He's seen the capturing of his nation, the captivity for decades. He's gone into the lion's den. He's seen his friends try to get burned into a fiery furnace. He's been threatened with death. He's seen all these things happen. In Daniel 11, it starts with this sentence. In the first year of Darius the Mede, so Darius the, the governor, the viceroy, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Seriously, Daniel, just stop. Like, how? How can you do this? I get angry when somebody steals my Cheetos. <laughs> Jane doesn't like Cheetos. It's, it's Audrey's. Uh, <clears throat> so what is it that Daniel knew that we seem to have forgotten? What is it that Paul is actually trying to tell the Galatians and all of this stuff? Like, when you're tired, when you're worn out, what is it that keeps people like Daniel, like Paul, like Jesus going? What is it that we should be gleaning out of this? So in Galatians 6, we're going to go back to it. Um, I'm going to read a, a larger chunk of the passage, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's actually going on. So in Galatians 6, this is verses 6 through 10, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of the faith. 
So what does that mean? Okay, I've, I've given you the story. We've talked about Daniel. Obviously, I'm making the transition over here to the Galatians, the New Testament church, and us. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to not lose heart? What does it mean to not become weary of doing good? And for that matter, why do good in the first place? Why should we even bother? I often find myself saying, I'm, I'm too tired. I don't have time. I'm worn out. It's not going to do any good anymore. So what does it mean to do good? And I, I like words. I like English words. I like Greek words. I like Latin words. I like words because they have significance. So what does it mean to do good? Well, it, it means to do good. Uh, really? I mean, that's how simple it really is. So the, it's a verb adjective form in the Greek, and it, they, they combine together to mean to make, to produce, to exercise, to give, to fulfill, and then good is that which is beautiful, excellent, that is morally, honor, morally honorable, that which is admirable. So make good, right? We all have this idea of what good is, right? We all have this idea of, of what good is. But what is good? I like good things. You like good things. My definition of good food may not be the same definition as yours is good food. My definition of a good sports team might not be your definition of a good sports team, right? So what is good? Because this seems like a very, you know, nebulous statement at this point. What is, what is good? Well, the good thing is Paul tells us. Uh, if we go into Galatians and go one chapter back, this is a very familiar, familiar passage, I'm sure, but this is in Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the, de of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I want to rewind just a second, and recognize that Paul here, in de defining good, uses the word goodness. Okay? In English, that's a big no-no. Uh, so I just wanted to find, for any of the geeks out there like me, is he's not using the same word. Okay? When he's telling us to do good, he's using an adjective. When he's talking about goodness, he's using a noun. And that noun in particular means being virtuous or being uh, benevolent. <clears throat> So from this same letter and Paul's earlier expositions, we can summarize doing good, okay? We can summarize doing good as cultivating and practicing the fruits of the Spirit. We can also define doing good as cultivating practicing the fruits of the Spirit while avoiding the corruption or the deeds of the flesh. In short, doing good is as simple as looking for someone else's needs prior to yours. Or... Uh, and this is the fun part where language comes back together, right? We can just go back to Matthew 7 or Luke 6. And it's the verse that we all learned back in kindergarten, whether you went to a secular school or not. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Interestingly enough, that same word do or do onto is the same word that's used when we're talking about doing good. So yeah, again, I know there's different adjectives in, in a different context, but the idea is the same. Do what's right. <clears throat> do the stuff that projects these fruits of the Spirit outward. So again, mic drop, walk out, we're done, right? Well, let's back up just another second. Is doing good the same as just being nice, right? Because I like it when people are nice to me. People like it when I'm nice to them. But is that always doing good? Well, yes, but with some caveats. And I'm going to use my favorite one because this is where it's really difficult for me and where I grow weary quite often. My kids are fantastic (laughs) until they are not, right? So it is so wearying to discipline and correct our children because I flip from one extreme to the other, right? I want to be like tough, stern, don't do that. And I want to be like, it's okay, we'll fix it, life's going to go on, we'll be okay, we just got to do it better next time. And being the consistent father who can define what's good and what's right, can correct them, and then can teach them the right way is not an easy process. And it's hard. If anybody had told me when I was a teenager that being a parent was this hard, I would have laughed and been like, what do my parents actually do? Right? <laughs> right? But the truth is, they worked hard. And so when they said they were, they were tired at the end of the day, I get it. It wasn't just because they went out there and went to work, brought home the, the bacon, or, you know, went out and mowed the lawn, which they made me do most of the time anyways. So... They were working hard to correct me and appoint me the right way over and over and over again. And, and believe it or not, Paul hits this too. Doing good is not necessarily the same as, as being nice. Doing good is practicing the fruits of the Spirit and pushing them into other people's lives. Paul himself addresses this in the beginning of Galatians 6 when he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them such as one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Even when doing good is not nice, our objective is to do good. When we can do good and be nice at the same time, that's just bonus points. Okay? So Daniel could have walked in and said to Belshazzar, that writing on the wall, don't worry about it. He's going to be dead in the morning. (laughs) But he didn't. He told him the truth, and he gave him those last minutes. He gave him that chance. He gave Belshazzar something that he himself really had never had, which was the the forewarning that this this is coming to you, this is coming to you specifically, and it's happening right now. Jesus wasn't nice in John 4 when he talks to the woman at the well. He's he's very loving, but when she says, oh, I'm I'm not married, he says, oh, hold on. Yes, you were. Yes, you are. And, of course, the guy you're living with right now isn't actually your husband. But don't try to play the I'm righteous card with me. I know. He wasn't nice about it. But he was very loving. And the entire conversation is about him bringing goodness into her life. So much so that she runs back to the village and says, hey, guys, come on. This guy, this guy knows a thing, a thing or two about a thing or two. Jesus wasn't nice when he talked to the rich, rich young ruler in Matthew 19 either, the rich young ruler comes to him and he says, what do I do? And Jesus is very blunt. He says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done that. 
And Jesus, without missing a beat and going like, seriously, dude? <laughs> he, he says instead, okay, you've, you've kept the commandments. Now sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. Follow me. Again, he wasn't nice. But he was true. And that's what Daniel had a handle on. That's what Paul is trying to tell the Galatians as well. Doing good, yes. Doing good means looking out for their welfare, even when it's a little bit painful or when it stings a little bit. So you might be saying, though, okay, why even bother? The world is headed down a slippery slope, and I'm one person. What can I actually do about it? Well, first and most importantly, uh, it's your job. I mean, I'm quite frank with you. If you call your, yourself a Christian, it's your job. Uh, we're going to jump to another of Paul's letters just for fun to do some comparison reading here. Uh, this is in Ephesians. This is in Ephesians 2, uh, specifically verses 2 through 8. And it's been used for a lot of things in a lot of places, but I want to point some stuff out to you. Ephesians 2, verses 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Just to point something out here. Yes, this is used as a salvation verse all the time. Uh, it's used a lot in arguments between being saved by grace or being saved by works and what that actually means. Uh, I get that. We're going to spin the conversation here just a little bit to point something else out. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as the result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we can't be saved by works, because good works is our job. Right? You can, you can earn a good wage for doing a good job. Right? But in this case, good works is the expectation. We aren't saved by works because we're expected to do them. It's your job. It's your job as a son of God, a daughter of God. It's your job as a brother to Christ. It is your job to do good. It's not exceptional. It's not a suggestion. It's a default position. Our job is to do good works. So let me give you a little bit more motivation, another personal story, because I'm told that this gives you, you know, congreg congregation connection, and it'll make you remember the story better. Uh, I do a lot of flying. I do a lot of flying all over the country, and when we go places, we land places, the places that we go, where we park the airplane on most airports, is called an FBO. Uh, it's a holdover from an older time, but it means fixed base of operation. It's kind of the one-stop shop for anything airplane. Uh, fuel, transportation, creature comforts, uh, coffee, ice snacks. It's everything. Now, like most things, the majority of these have been, they've been dragged together into a couple of large companies. I have strong feelings about these companies. I have never met any of the CEOs of any of these companies. I don't know their mission statements. I don't know their corporate philosophies. I don't know anything about them. What I do know is when I walk into the door of one of these FBOs, how I am treated by their employees. If the employees do good, I feel good. I have a favorable view of the company. And I say, yeah, next time we go to, okay, today we're in Virginia, tomorrow we're going to be in Pennsylvania, I want to go to the same place. 
different locations, but I know that they're going to treat me all right. If my interactions are poor, uh, which happens often, my opinions of the whole institution go down pretty drastically. So instead of New York, we're going to California, but I'm going to avoid this one because I know that the guys in New York don't treat me well. So it doesn't matter there's 2,500 miles between them. They're the same people in my mind. This is one of the things that Daniel had figured out. As an agent of Yahweh, he was representing God to the nation, to the entire nation of the Babylonians. Even in these degrading situations, he knew, uh, I'm going to use the vernacular here a little bit, but he knew that as an employee of God, his job was to do good works. And if he didn't do those good works, God was going to have a very disfavorable disposition in the front of these people. What happened when Daniel did good? His religion was basically put on a whitelist and allowed throughout the nation of Babylon. He had it in good with Darius. I mean, he, he built a reputation by doing good, even when it didn't always go so well for him at, at the time. Paul reflects this in Galatians, and he's asking you, if you are a servant or an employee of the kingdom of heaven, what image of the creator are you displaying? Are you sowing chaos and destruction into the world, or are you sowing good? I'm going to go back one more time just because this astounds me so much. But even after everything that happened to him, in Daniel 11, we learn that Daniel arose to be an encouragement and a protection for Darius. I just want you to imagine that for a moment, okay? In fact, I'm going to flip the timeline just a little bit. We're coming up on July 4th, right? Uh, We have lots of pithy sayings, the the forefathers of our country. And I don't want any of you to think that I'm not happy to live here because I absolutely am. But this is the equivalent of instead of, Uh, the famous give me liberty or give me death, right? Instead of saying that's the the same as saying, well, you know what, King George, I've got your back. You've been in captivity for all this time. They're pilfering your money. They're pilfering your goods. They're taking your people. And yet I'm arising and saying, hey, how can I help you do this job better? I'm not saying we're done with you, out with the old, in with the new. I'm Daniel is saying, how can I be an encouragement to you, O great captor of my people? Seems like Daniel had a pretty good idea of what it meant to do good in hard situations. Jesus, uh, we can't have a conversation about the New Testament without talking about Jesus a little bit. Yes, Jesus died for us, and that's a very important thing. Um, Use us metaphorically here. I know hopefully none of you were alive back then. (laughs) Barney, are you still... (laughs) Uh, but no I just think about all the times that Jesus stopped what he was doing Jesus had this grand mission right he had this very big his grand mission but he stops often often to help people Uh, John 2 we learned about his first miracle why did he perform his first miracle well because his mother asked him to okay Uh, in Mark 2 he pauses a sermon an epic sermon a full house He pauses the sermon to hear a paralytic that they dug a hole through the roof to bring him down in front of him. In Matthew 8, he heals a leper while he's on his way down a mountain. Uh, In John 4, we just talked about it. He stops and is physically weary, stops to sit at a well, and he interacts and brings in this entire epic conversation with this woman. In Luke 13, he pauses a sermon to heal a woman who is bent double. 
Uh, in Mark 5, he's on his way to the synagogue to perform a grand healing for a synagogue official. And he stops. He encourages. He confronts a woman who touched him. In Mark 6, he has compassion on a group of over 5,000 men. So who, who knows how many women and children on top of that. He stops teaching to feed them. In Mark 8, he does it again. All right? People have come out to see him. They've gone to the, the festival of Jesus' teaching. They've been there for three days. And Jesus says, okay, that's enough. Let's get these people fed. In Matthew 20, he stops and heals two blind men on his way out of Jericho. Even though the crowd around him says, be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. Again, uh, in John 19, he's hanging on the cross. And he looks out, he sees his mother, and he says, John, take care of my mom. After dying and coming back, now he's got an even grander mission ahead of him, right? He's, he's died and he's come back. He comes back specifically to show Thomas, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's me, Thomas. Not only that, he hangs out for another 40 days to show people that this is who I am. Jesus took the time to prove his message. Jesus took the time to develop his entire message. Part of that was that he took the time to actually do good while he was here. He took the time to show us what it means to interact with a damaged world and do good consistently. But here's the spoiler alert, right? We look at it with the things that I just said. All oh, that's good. That's great. Okay, I've got a little bit of motivation, but doggone it, I'm tired. I am tired of doing the right thing. I'm tired of walking into interactions at work that are degrading. I'm tired of talking to my family. I'm tired of walking into a church where things aren't getting done. I'm tired of being in a situation where I feel like I'm not appreciated. I'm just tired. How many of us can just say we are just tired? Doing good is hard. Just like planting a garden and working under the sun, it's hard. Well, here's the spoiler in all of this. Paul's not saying you're not allowed to be tired, that you're not allowed to rest, that you're not allowed to recuperate. Just to give a couple of examples, in Daniel 8, I already mentioned this, but in Daniel 8, after he has multiple visions, it says that Daniel was so exhausted that he couldn't get out of bed for days. Daniel was tired. Jesus was well known to withdraw at times to be alone because people are frustrating. Jesus got weary physically. He got hungry. He got tired. Uh, we already talked about in John 4, but in John 4, he's traveling. He's tired. He sends his disciples on ahead to get him food because he's hungry. He asked the woman at the well to get him water because he's thirsty. And he's tired, so he's sitting down. Elohim... God the Creator rests in Genesis 2. Furthermore, He commands His people to rest in Exodus 20. Being physically, being emotionally weary is not the problem. And I would argue that in most of our situations, when we decide that we are tired, it's not necessarily that just that we are physically or emotionally tired. It's that we don't want to do it anymore. We don't want to do good anymore. When Paul tells the Galatians to not lose heart or to not grow weary, he's not telling them don't get tired. He's telling them that after everything, when you choose to do good, don't go halfway. 
when you decide to do good, when you decide to actually do your job, when you're convicted to live like Daniel, don't go halfway. In the vernacular, don't bring it weak. If you choose to go out and do something, don't bring it weak. Imagine this. It's University of Michigan, OSU. They're down to the two-minute mark. They're tied. They go into the locker room to have their oorah-rah speech, and the coach says, well, guys, you played hard, but they won. Let's go home. Who would watch that sports movie? Nobody would watch that sports movie. He sits down. He has everybody sitting down around him. They get in their little huddle. He says, guys, you played hard. You left it all out there. Don't bring that weak stuff. Right? This is what Paul is telling him. You've been doing good. Great. Keep doing it. The good that you've done before, keep doing it. Don't bring it weak. It's like a pitcher walking out of the bullpen decides that, uh, I know I'm going to have to pitch 100 pitches tonight to close this game, so I'm just going to, eh, we'll give it half power. No. It's like the football players, they have two seconds left on the clock. They're at the 50-yard line. Are they going to try the Hail Mary, or are they just going to kneel down and let it happen? Don't bring it weak. So how do we stay that way? Well, the Bible regularly uses this concept of sowing and reaping, work and wages, and tells us when we're doing something to go all the way. Daniel understood this. He read about the promise of the future return to Israel, to Judah, to rebuild. And even though he himself did not return, or at least presumably he did not, and he definitely did not see the rebuilding of the temple, he still endeavored to do everything he could to endear the Israelites to the kings. And I would even argue that some of his influence filtered all the way to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and gave him a slightly more favorable disposition to all of these captured peoples. Because he saw, or would have seen, at least through Darius, the service of this man. So what about us? What about us? How do we stay motivated like Daniel? How do we live on top of this precipice of doing good and stay there instead of falling down the mountain? Well, I'm going to close by giving you guys one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, it's not an easy one, but one of those things, or at least a couple of those things, that will help bring everything to a close. And this comes from the book of Hebrews uh, in chapter 13. Uh, I'll read 12, 13, and 14, but we're going to focus in on, on chapter thir- or verse 13 here. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So then, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Like Daniel, we stand to see the restoration of God's people to himself. How great are the rewards of being one of those who are instrumental in bringing about that process? So we can consider the rewards that are coming to us. We are not citizens of this earth. Jesus has not finished working for us. In John, we learn that uh, John 14 Jesus says that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, 
to where I am that you may be also. Jesus hasn't finished working for us. He's building a place for us. He's building a reward for us. So if I were to go and just dissect this passage for you for just a second, the reason that we can continue to have motivation is that, one, it's accomplished. Jesus did it. Right? He did good. He showed us how to do it. Furthermore, he's still working for us. He's still building for us. He's still interceding for us. And then finally, there are rewards that are waiting. Uh, Nathan has said it multiple times. uh, God is not for earning, but God is for effort. And there is an effort here, and I'm not going to lie to you. It's difficult at times. But what Daniel knew, what Jesus lived, and what Paul is telling the Galatians is do good. Do good. Do the fruits of the spirits. Be the ambassadors. When you do good, don't bring it weak. Don't lose heart in doing those good things. Because eventually the garden will grow. Not only will you have rewards here on earth, though, but you are looking for something that is so much better. So much better. We do this because of who we are in Christ, what he did for us. We do this because of who Christ is and what he's doing for us now. And we do what we do because he has something better for us built that we are just waiting to walk into. So in closing, I encourage you all to go out and do good. I know I I talked for a long time, but it's just because Jacob challenged me. (laughs) So go home, do good. In the church, do good. In your relationships, do good. Go out and do good. I'm going to pray briefly for us, and then I think the kids are already here. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you that for some reason that is unfathomable to me, that you have decided to use us to be your agents in this world. I just pray, Lord, that we would be worthy of that call, that we could follow in the footsteps of the great men that have gone before us, like Daniel, like your prophets, like Paul, like the disciples, like Jesus, and that we could do good. I just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would motivate us, that you would use this company of believers around us to encourage ourselves to run the race, to do good, to be good, and to eventually see the coming of the grand city that you have waiting for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.